0: RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.
1: It's Shabam, sponsored in part by Google.
2: Okay, in part one, we came up with a process to figure out what's true and what's not. And just to recap, first, we have to bust out our mental
0: truth probability meter. Because you
2: wanna see things in terms of probabilities, like scientists do. When new information hits your brain, you're ready to move your probability meter between probably true and probably not true. And to help you figure out which way your probability meter should move, you go through three simple steps.
1: Step one, analyze the source.
2: Step two, analyze the information. And finally, step three, triangulate. Part two, we're going to show you how these steps can be applied to the real world. Part two, using the three steps to figuring out the truth about things in the real world. We're gonna start right. off when your sister tells you to go onto the internet and check out okay. a news article about alien conspiracies We get and it. You have to tell her she should stop <sighs> sending yes. you that yeah, stuff. Yeah. It's ruining all the family get-togethers Okay, thanks for that. We're gonna show you how these steps can be applied to the real world
1: We humans are naturally curious, which is why we need to check out that dark cave or why we stay up late finishing the book that we love, or why we panic just a little bit when someone we like
0: Why are you not responding?
1: doesn't return our text messages. And that's because, as we said in part one, your brain really, really doesn't like unknowns.
2: I really don't. I hate them. So much so that our brains would rather make stuff up instead of just letting an unknown sit there, being an unknown.
0: Can't let it sit there.
2: It's just annoying. Uh,
0: let's just make it up.
2: We need to know. What is it? Take Nadine's dad, Miles, for example. What the heck happened to him? If we finished
0: the show without telling you what happened, you'd probably be annoyed because you're missing the end of the story.
2: You see how annoying that is? You didn't know what happened. It's an unknown. And for some of you, you started making stuff up, right? Maybe there's a problem with the download. Maybe my phone ran out of juice. Or maybe there's an actual mistake in the show.
1: When we don't have any information to finish even a sentence, our brains try to fill in the gaps. Nadine is doing the exact same thing at this point. She feels like she's running out of options. She's finally got a hold of Pendleton Air Force My Base own. using a secure phone.
3: R-E-S-C-O-T-T.
1: But they were unable to give her any information about her dad. <sighs> so she started to come up with theories. Maybe he's alive, but he just can't
3: get to the phone right now for some reason. Or he was bitten by Zinsky. Or he's still out there. Maybe he's injured. Or maybe he never loved me in the first place and used this as an excuse to leave town. Never loved me. He's fine. I don't think he's alive. He's totally fine. He's Izzynski. I know he's
4: Izzynski. Now if Nadine had a probability meter, it would be all over the place. When she's afraid, the worst outcome seems the most probable. He's Izzynski. When she's feeling hopeful, the best outcome seems probable.
1: He's totally right.
4: But without any more information, she feels pretty lost.
1: Like Nadine, we struggle with unknowns and often fill in the gaps based on what feels correct instead of what's most probable. So. What do we do in the real world when we see or hear something that we can't explain? Like, I don't know, a flying humanoid creature? Well, we're about to find out.
2: Flying humanoids. If you go on the internet and search flying humanoid Chicago, you get a whole bunch of information that looks like it could be true. And on YouTube, you get the same thing. And to be clear, this is not part of our Knox zombie fictional story. We're being serious. This is something on the internet right now.
4: Let's switch on that probability meter. And for the sake of the show, we're going to start that meter in the middle, meaning that we're going to assume that the story's probability of being true is about the same as it being false.
2: All right, cool. Here's the story. In the past couple of years, over 50 people have reported that they saw a large, human-sized creature with wings either flying around the city or perched in high places. Sometimes it hovers, sometimes it lands on a car, basically just scares people. OK. This sounds a little crazy, but...
1: There are articles, websites, even a Google map showing locations of where these sightings happen. Huh. Let's ask the big question from part one. Why should I believe that?
2: Well, at first glance, you might think, oh yeah, that's, that's probable, because there's more than 50 eyewitnesses, including a cop and a friend of a newspaper reporter. Okay. And the detailed map shows some clustering in certain areas. Yeah. Also, legit newspapers like the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Tribune have written articles about these sightings.
4: Hmm. Now, some people would hear all that and think, sounds good. I can't wait to tell
2: Gerald. Tell he, me what? He's a mysterious flying humanoid. Oh, no. Who's flying around Chicago. Bye, right. people,
4: man. But we can do better than that. No, it's true. We've asked Ben Radford to come back and help us apply the three steps we talked about in part one. Remember, Ben spent years scientifically investigating strange claims like this? Where do we begin? Step one, analyze the source.
1: Who is telling us about seeing huge bat-like creatures? There's a website which has collected all of the eyewitness accounts. These are the stories from people who said they saw something.
2: And these only exist in text form, so we're getting a computer to read it aloud. Had humanoid features such as pronounced like arms. Like those of eggs.
0: a huge eagle, but more triangular. It looked like
5: it
6: had bat wings. It looked like
0: it was like trying to get into arms. the car.
5: One thing you look at, of course, in examining these sightings is who are making these reports. In most cases, they're anonymous.
4: Anonymous is when the name
2: of the person is not identified so we don't know who they are.
4: This is a problem because if we don't know who they are, we can't verify anything about them. Are they honest? Yes.
2: No, we have no idea. One guy says he's a cop. He could be, but he could just as well be some dude saying he's a cop. In fact, everybody could be making it up.
4: Are they unbiased?
2: Again, don't know because we don't know who they are.
4: And lastly, are the sources experts? This is an easy no. None of the anonymous eyewitnesses describe themselves as experts. But wait, you say,
2: who would be an expert in flying
4: mystery creatures? Well, a good place to start would be an expert in flying non-mystery creatures, like, I don't know, an ornithologist.
1: A biologist that studies birds.
7: Or a batologist. (laughs) A biologist that studies flying mammals called bats. That's not real, right? My name's Dr. Tyrone Lavery, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher. I focus on mammals in... The area around Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, and Australia.
2: Okay, so there's no such thing as a batologist. But we did find a mammologist.
7: And I mostly focus in bats and rats.
2: We even found a mammologist who looks
7: for rare species of rats and bats. They say that I'm chasing ghosts, really?
4: Okay, let's see how good an expert he is. Let's go back to the questions that Ben asked in part one Do they have a PhD? Yes, he's got a PhD in Ecology from the University of Queensland in Australia. Are they
5: recognised in the field?
4: Yep, he currently works at the University of Kansas and he's a scientific affiliate with the Field Museum in Chicago, both respected institutions. So they passed exams. I think we covered that with a PhD. He's worked in this field for over seven years and he spent so much time looking
7: for a rare species of bat on the island of Vanganu that the locals have given him a nickname. Oh, they call me Tagi. T-A-G-I. That's the name for the monkey-faced bat. <laughs> So, in addition to being well-educated and employed by respected institutions,
2: Dr. Tyrone Lavery is nicknamed after an actual bat. (laughs) If you're looking for an expert opinion on large flying bat creatures, Dr. Lavery is probably a good place to start.
1: And have any experts like Dr. Lavery chimed in on the flying humanoid debate? (laughs) Sadly, no.
2: So not only are there no expert witnesses, the expert that we did find to ask about flying humanoids thought it was a joke.
1: And then one more thing about these sources. These eyewitnesses aren't telling us their stories directly. We're reading them on a website that has gathered the stories together.
5: What you find is that in many of these cases, the people that are collecting these reports and promoting them, they have an agenda. Meaning they have a bias. And so if you already believe that there is a mysterious flying creature in the skies over Chicago, then you're going to pick and choose anything that's considered weird and lump that into evidence for the flying creature that you're sure exists.
2: So someone who already believes in flying humanoids is more likely to believe someone saw a flying humanoid instead of something else. They're biased toward believing in flying humanoids. So is the source biased? Well, for the eyewitnesses, we don't know. And for the website people, probably yes.
4: So after analyzing the sources, we find that they are pretty far from an honest, unbiased expert. In fact, they seem to be a lot closer to unknown, potentially biased, non-experts. So not very credible sources pushes our
2: probability meter down towards less likely.
1: Before we get to step two, let's check back in with Nadine. What kind of sources has she been dealing with? Are the people at the Air Force Base honest and unbiased? It seems like it. They want to help her find her dad and they don't really have any reason to lie. But they can't do very much. She needs a better source. I know there are thousands of people who are lost, but you have to have some sort of registry,
3: right? The name is Miles Prescott. Can you please check again?
0: Uh, excuse me, miss? I'm on the phone. Did you say Miles Prescott? Yeah. Uh, You must be Nadine. Uh, how do you know that? My name is Ed McIntyre. I work Mm -hmm. with Miles in finance. I'll call you back. Do you know what happened to him? Last we heard, he was at work. Uh, The police took him. What? Why? I I don't know. Miles was leaving work early, I think to get you. There was a commotion because he hit Jerry. What? Yeah. There was a lot of blood. (sighs) And, uh, Jerry looked, sick. What?
3: Do you know where they took him?
0: Uh, No, not really.
3: You're here. Why isn't he here? I- You said there was blood.
0: Oh, um... Why
3: would they take him? I don't know. Why are you telling me this?
2: Nadine is frustrated because although Ed is a good source, he just doesn't have enough information for her to get to the truth. What Nadine needs is evidence. And what about our flying humanoids? Is there any evidence that there are flying bat creatures in Chicago? Let's find out. Step two, analyze the
4: information.
1: In step one we concluded that our flying humanoid sources consisted of a lot of unknown, potentially biased non-experts. So, what about evidence?
4: First, we have a lot of anecdotal evidence, which is pretty weak, but we have more than 50 people with anecdotal evidence about seeing something. How would Tyrone tackle this?
7: The way that I would start would be by interviewing each of these people that's reported seeing a flying humanoid. I would ask them a lot of questions about what it looked like, what time of day they saw it, where they saw it, and then I'd start by looking for patterns in those answers that people gave me. But this is tricky, because if you're not careful, you could be the one
2: creating a pattern just by how you ask questions.
7: Well, my main approach is to not give the information that I'm looking for. So for example, another species of mammal that Tyrone's been looking for is a large
2: tree-dwelling rat that people say they've seen, but no one's actually caught or photographed.
7: You know, if you say, is the rat black, then people might immediately agree with you rather than thinking of the color themselves. Then you've actually introduced a bias, because now your eyewitnesses are biased
2: towards thinking black, when maybe they would have said dark brown had you just asked, What color is the
4: rat? And you have to make sure bias doesn't creep into other questions. So you have to ask things like,
7: How does it live? What does it eat? Rather than, Does it live up in the trees? Does it eat coconuts?
1: So if you're talking to witnesses in Chicago and you want to get unbiased answers about flying humanoids, you wouldn't mention flying humanoids. Instead, you would ask, What did you see? How big was it? Now it means something if you find a pattern.
7: If I interviewed 50 people and they gave me 50 different answers for how this thing looked, then I would be pretty uncertain that it existed. But if I interviewed 50 people and, say, 40 of them gave me an answer that was very similar, there might be actually something to this story.
4: So let's use Tyrone's technique and see if these eyewitnesses show a pattern. Let's go out and interview them. Oh, wait, we can't. We don't know who they are. So another bad thing about our sources being anonymous is that we can't actually follow up and ask them questions about what they saw.
1: So all we have to go on are these anonymous reports. And according to Ben Radford, they're not very consistent.
5: You have some people saying it was like a a large bat or an owl. This
0: object looked like a
5: large black bat.
0: Others described it
5: differently. The wings were rounded like that of an insect with no sharp edges. Other people say it was a uh, tall six or seven foot man that had like wings on the back. The wings looked like those of a huge eagle, but more triangular in form. So when you look more closely at the weird flying animal sightings, you find that they're not talking about one specific thing, they're actually talking about a variety of things.
1: So it's not even clear that all this anecdotal evidence is describing the same thing. That's something we're assuming because someone else grouped all of these descriptions together.
4: But wait, you say.
2: There's like so many eyewitnesses, man. Doesn't that mean anything? It's got to mean something.
4: Well, this depends. How many people live in the area where these sightings occurred?
7: If there's particular areas where there's not that many people living but they're seeing it a lot, I would think that that's got more chance of finding it in that area than an area of big population where it's not seen very often.
4: So since Chicago is a city of 2.7 million people, and it's only been seen 50 times. With so few sightings in
7: such a big city, that would decrease my, my belief in it. Okay, let's move on from anecdotal evidence.
1: What about physical evidence?
7: As far as we can tell, just looking
2: for flying humanoids in Chicago, there's no video footage and two or three blurry photos that exist, one of which was uploaded to the internet in 2011. So, the first thing to ask is of course, are these photos real? There's a whole branch of science dedicated to solving crimes called forensics that also deals with spotting the tricks that people use to fake things like photographs. And the bad news is that most people are not forensic investigators. No. The good news is that you can find tools on the internet to help you. Photoforensics is
6: a digital image analysis site.
2: That's Neil Krawitz and his site, which he said really fast, is called Photo Forensics with an F, F-O-T-O Forensics.
6: So you can upload a picture and go through a couple of tools that will help you tell if the picture's been digitally altered or if it's camera original or if it was modified, how or where was it modified.
2: Neil's a hacker and a computer scientist. Oh wow.
1: On his website, you can upload a photograph and use his software to determine if it's been messed with or not.
4: Neil's software allows you to look for clues in the digital information that make up an image file. If you know what you're looking for, you can find out all kinds of things you
6: can't otherwise see, like metadata. Metadata. Metadata is data about data. So it's information like the type of camera that was used, the camera settings that were used, the date and time the picture was taken. If there's GPS information, which there usually isn't, but if there is, then it's the type of GPS information, so you know, the latitude, longitude, possibly the altitude or the direction they were facing.
2: So if someone shows you a picture of an ancient Roman mummy, but the metadata shows that it was taken in New Jersey, this physical evidence is probably fake.
0: What are you talking about you saying there's no Romans in New Jersey, and
2: your probability meter would go down. Neil's software also analyzes the image itself. One of the
6: algorithms that I have is something called error level analysis.
2: Error level analysis looks at what's happening with the pixels that make up the image.
6: And it takes a look at the amount of error that is introduced when you save the picture. So it basically draws it as a map over the picture. So you can see this area changed a lot and that area changed very little.
2: Basically, if you mess with one part of a picture and not the other, say you're replacing someone's face, the manipulated area will show up differently than the rest of the photo. You can't see what was done, but you can see that something was done.
6: And there are a whole bunch of other super secret tools that Neil couldn't tell us about. Most of the pictures that I uh, work on for clients I'm not allowed to talk about.
2: Oh, wow. Okay, but what about flying humanoids? Well, there's one picture that's been mentioned a lot, which looks like it was taken with a camera out a car window. In the sky in the background, there's a really small brown thing that looks like it could be a flying human bat thing.
1: So what you want to do is find the original photo, or in this case, the very first version of the photo that was uploaded to the web, and do some analysis on it. Well, we did that. And then we sent it to Neil to get the full workup with all of his super secret forensic tools. And what did he find?
4: First off, it's a fake. But what is interesting is that Neil said it was a pretty good fake. In fact, he gave it an A minus. Nothing in the metadata and error level analysis looked immediately suspect.
2: Whoever created it was trying to trick not only casual web servers, but also forensic tools as well. Which means two things. One, watch out for fake pictures. And two, there are no real photos of flying bat humanoids in Chicago. Okay, so what about other physical evidence? Hair samples? Blood samples? Poop samples. Nothing. Well, sometimes you have to
5: go to the anecdotal evidence to find more physical evidence. If you say you saw a Bigfoot on a ridge, you can go to that ridge and look for hard evidence, right? You could maybe find a bone or a piece of hair or something. You could also do what Tyrone did when he was looking for his
7: rats and bats. We used camera traps, which are automatic cameras you can leave in the forest for three months at a time, up to six months, and that whole time they're working by themselves automatically if a Rat walks in front of the camera, it will take a photo.
2: Yes, we know what you're thinking. I'm not gonna go set up some cameras out there for three months at a time in Chicago because somebody said there was a flying humanoid. Yes, that's true. But did anybody do that? Did anybody go and see if there was security camera footage that might have caught this flying humanoid? Did anyone go out to where these sightings happened and look for physical evidence, like scratches on rooftops or feathers or anything else? So we're
0: gonna pan around and show you- Turns out, yes. Uh, where this. Uh, the creature was spotted. And did
2: they find any physical evidence? Showed up.
0: Did you actually take a walk around the park? We did, and, we and did. And see if you could find any evidence of anything uh, happening? I mean,
1: it's been a week now, so things might have kind of washed away. Yeah, but, well, I mean, it's hard to say. Yeah, you know, what, what, exactly? what could you even look
2: for? What, what, no. <laughs> so basically, there's no physical evidence.
1: Lastly, experimental evidence. There's no physical evidence to do tests on. And we don't know much about flying humanoid behavior, so it'd be hard to set up an experiment. The only thing that we can do is test stuff that we do know about that could relate to flying humanoids.
5: So for example, in the research that I did into giant mysterious birds in New Mexico, I consulted paleontologists and ornithologists to find out how big can they actually get. There are actual anatomical constraints on how big a bird can get, because if the wings are too big, they they physically can't lift them.
2: Did anybody do any math to figure out whether the wings should be too big or whether the body's too heavy or whether anatomically it's even possible?
4: And all of this to say is that the experimental evidence, which is the strongest kind, isn't present in any of the news coverage.
2: So, our second step.
4: Analyze the information.
2: The evidence. What do we have? Spotty anecdotal evidence. No good physical evidence. No experimental evidence.
1: Probability meter, even lower. And what about Nadine? What kind of evidence does she have about her dad? She has anecdotal evidence from Ed about her dad getting attacked by Jerry. But was Jerry Azinski? Was there any contact between him and her dad? What did Ed actually see? Is there any physical evidence? Did you see him get attacked?
0: Yeah, but I don't know if he... Uh... Oh, 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 I actually took some video. Really? Oh, but I lost my phone. Great. I mean, there was a lot of commotion. There was, like, a lot of guys rappelling down from the helicopter, and and everything was like, dust was flying everywhere, and, you know? Great. Oh, you know what? I sent it to Susan. She's here, too. She may have it. Susan!
1: Susan! Ed, why are you yelling? This is Miles'
0: daughter. Who? From finance. Oh. Hey, do you have that video, the one I sent you of the cops picking up Miles? Uh, I think so. Let me check.
1: Yeah, yeah, here it is. Oh my god. What is going on? Oh my god.
2: What's wrong? Where aren't they Jerry? helping him? He I I don't know what is going on. Is that
5: his blood?
0: Oh, um I
5: got that Oh voice. my god. We need you to come with us. I, I can't. What? My kid um, is waiting for me. Sir so Raskin nice that's not going to last long.
3: That's it. I knew it. He's infected.
0: Hey, you don't know that.
3: He's probably fine. Yeah, that's what everyone keeps telling me.
2: So, Nadine finally has some physical evidence, and it doesn't look good. If Miles had a cut on his arm when he got close to Jerry, he may have been exposed to the Knox fires. The police took him in for quarantine, and that's all we know. So for Nadine, the probability that he's alive is getting lower.
4: And speaking of low probabilities, let's get back to our flying humanoids.
2: So far, we've come up with a whole lot of nothing. Unreliable sources reporting questionable evidence. Our probability meter is pretty low. So it's time for our last step. Step three, triangulate.
4: Okay, let's triangulate. Who else has been reporting on the humanoids? Yes, there are articles in the Chicago Reader and Tribune, both legitimate papers. But what's the content? Mostly they are describing the eyewitness accounts. They are not actually investigating the claims. And all the articles they cite are by one guy who runs the website that has been collecting these claims.
2: There are no other independent verified sources reporting on seeing a flying humanoid. And in fact, the two sources we did look at, a guy who investigates the existence of mysterious creatures and a guy who investigates the existence of non-mysterious
5: creatures, both sources, independent of each other, told us. There's really no good hard evidence of flying humanoids in the skies. I would be surprised if there was a big
7: human-sized animal that can fly that we haven't discovered yet. Leads our probability meter to fall into the highly, highly, highly unlikely
2: zone. Which is great news, because now you can confidently walk around Chicago at night not having to worry about flying Birdman. Oh, yeah? Ma, tell him what you saw last week.
1: It was flying Bugman with huge eyes, like in that movie.
2: How do you explain that? And your response should be?
1: I can't. But that doesn't mean she can either. Show me the evidence that it was a flying humanoid, and I'll revise my truth of probability.
4: Mark,
0: you don't believe
4: you. When we encounter information, we need to switch on our probability meter and take our three steps. Analyze the source, analyze the information, and triangulate.
0: Step one, check the who's the origination.
2: Check the two, check the what's the information. Step three, check who else
0: triangulation. Then recess is probability Is it more or less?
2: This is a lot of work for your brain to do, and your brain is gonna get tired. It's much easier to believe stuff you already think is true. It's much harder when all the evidence is pointing to one thing, and you really wanna believe another. Right now, Nadine is struggling because her probability meter isn't pointing in the direction she wants it to.
1: So, it's been two days since the kids arrived at the base. Nadine still hasn't heard anything from the other safe zones about her dad. And after talking to Ed and Susan, she's afraid the worst. Has happened
3: so, Nadine. I was thinking,
1: Elliot, it's been two days,
3: but <laughs> what if I would have found him by now? Yeah, it, I just don't even know what they're doing. So, what I mean, if the Red Cross in World War Two was more efficient than this and their computers were terrible? But how hard is it to alphabetize? Nadine, list? I mean, come on, shut up here. What is that? It's a phone, you talk into it. Say hello, hello. She was in quarantine for five hours, then waiting around for two days for her dad to finally pick up the phone. Where are you?
7: I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I,
2: I, I'm at Camp Pendleton, about 250 miles south of you guys. Hey, the walkers has told me a little bit about your adventure. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
2: Not gonna fuss so much when I ask you to go camping next time, are you?
3: Dad? I am not going camping for a very, very long time.
5: <laughs> you kids really did it. I
3: miss you, Dad.
5: Yeah, me too, kiddo, me too. You stay safe and I'll see you soon. And keep Owen and Elliot out of trouble, will you?
3: (laughs) I'll try. (laughs) I've got some very interesting stories to tell you.
5: Well, you can tell me in a few days.
1: I love you. I love you too. So, why is the truth important?
2: First of all, it's important because you don't want to get scammed out of your money buying flying humanoid insurance or edible moon cheese, or magic crystals, or brain tonics. But it's also important if you are curious about how the world actually works. What if you're not curious about how things work you just want to sit on your couch? Well, do you like driving in cars and surfing the internet? Well, of course, everybody loves that, man. Cars and computers only exist because of curiosity. In fact, all of the things we take for granted, vaccines, cell phone towers, clean water, safe food, and complex transportation networks None of that would exist if scientists and engineers weren't trying
5: to figure out the truth about how the world works. It's important to to know what's true about the world because that's how humanity progresses. That's how we build bridges and, and design buildings and make medical advances is poking at the world and exploring and figuring out what's real and what's not real, what's truth and what's myth. The human brain never stops being
4: curious. And this curiosity led us to building all the things that make up the world we live in. We need to figure out how everything works because our brains hate unknowns. The problem is, our
2: brains aren't perfect. And because of this, sometimes we think we're figuring stuff out, when we're actually making stuff
7: up.
1: And that's why humans develop science, as a way to keep our brains focused on the truth, regardless of what we want to be true. And you can think scientifically, too, by taking out your probability meter and using the three steps. Now, before we go, let's deal with the last unknown of the story.
2: Dr. Mills, Karen Wyman, USA Today.
1: What happened to the Knox epidemic? Uh, What's the current status of the epidemic at this point, as far as you understand it?
5: We do have scientists on the ground, accompanied by the National Guard. They're reporting that the outbreak is 80% contained. With the swift evacuation of the non-infected population, the infected individual's source of food and water was eliminated. As far as we understand it, They still rely on these basic necessities to survive and without them they're slowly dying off.
0: So
1: you're saying people can go back to their homes? Is that what you're saying?
5: Unfortunately not for a while. We are taking soil samples to determine how long...
1: So
2: it all worked out in the end. The outbreak burned itself out, the Walkers came closer as a family, Nadine was reunited with her dad and... You're not serious. What? Look at all this cool stuff you guys did. Nearly got killed multiple times. You're fine now.
0: Shabam! is produced by C.C. Herbert. Hey, your hosts are...
4: My dad, Mel Herbert.
0: My dad, Josh Kirsch. And my mom, Wendy Rotowice. They also created the show.
4: You know what? You people are sick. Come on, you drove your first car. Yeah, right into a truck. That's like a rite of passage.
0: Recording engineer, Mix Master, is Bill Connor. Our voice actors are... Steve Santushi, Ro Sangenberger, Chase Salaminski, Sean Paris, Jess Thinkpen, Andrew Gallant. This was extremely dangerous. But look
1: at all the scientific reasoning and problem solving you guys did. Problems that uh, you
0: created. Summer Austin, my mom, Danielle Benjamin,
4: Ward Crockett, Tim Tui, Art Kimbrough, Jason Major, Dave Mason, Jess Mason, and Sarah Birmingham. You were so clever with the water heater and the mylar. That was great!
3: That water heater water tasted like sulfur. Glad you had fun.
4: With a special thanks to Professor
6: Ben Radford, Dr. Tyrone Lavery,
0: Neil Crowitz, Joanne Dubach, Tim Versteinen, Dr. Joyce Chaplin, and me, Grady Roto, Ryan obrien and me, Zachary
3: Benjamin Kurz,
4: and me, Micah Herbert.
3: I would really like to
4: have a word with all of your mothers. Also featuring the musical stylings of Matt Eccles and St.
6: Cecilia.
1: Shabam is a production of Fooly Incorporated. This episode of Shabam is sponsored in part by the making and science team of Google. And why is that, Cece?
6: Because Google
4: loves science. Trauma. That's the word that I'm coming out with. Trauma.
2: Guys, I think you're not appreciating what a useful teaching tool you've been part of. Think about it. We go about our lives taking a lot of things for granted. Our brains, our immune systems, electricity, food, water, cell phones, and GPS. Then along comes a zombie apocalypse and messes all that up and forces us to examine all the things we rely on. (laughs) This whole adventure has been one big teachable moment. You know what? Next time you can take that teachable moment and shove it right up your... Elliot! Okay, it's the end of season one, and your final zombie tip is this. Zombie protection is not just about preventing a pathogen from taking control of your brain. It's about avoiding anything taking control of your brain. You can get zombified by ideas, or foods, or your phone, or advertisements, or even... Okay, let me do this. The best way to support Shabam is through gold or monthly donations through Patreon at patreon.com. Go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast, review it, and like it. And then subscribe to the YouTube channel, go to the website, com. shout out on Twitter, WhatsApp, Facebook, Snapchat, boom, nailed it. So can I be on the show? No, dude, your timing is awful. I you practice. Know, this. We just finished saying all this stuff about getting zombified by social media. This is the last one. Now you're talking about social media. Ridiculous. Also, it's the last
7: what
2: episode. I feel like What's the timing?
0: Podcast.rottenberry.com